In our last episode, we took a look at the pictures Luke paints about the early Christian movement in Jerusalem. These are Jews within Jerusalem who have accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. They live alongside the temple and still practice things like temple worship, so very much still Jews. Luke makes direct comparisons between the Jewish temple and the followers of Jesus. Luke is clearly making the argument that Jesus' gift to the disciples is that God's dwelling is now amongst the believers. They are the successor to the temple. This is an unprecedented change and would have meant a lot to Luke's uh, Jewish readers in 80 AD after the destruction of the temple. This week, we'll be looking at the next chapter in Acts. We move from a story centered in Jerusalem to one reaching out to the province of Judea and its next door neighbor, Samaria. The theme also changes as we need to grapple with a new concept. God's plan for the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Is Jesus just good news for Jews? What is God's plan for those who aren't Jewish? And now, this might be obvious to listeners today, but matters of faith and ethnicity were very different in Hellenistic times, so the question was far more divisive. And uh, within this context, we'll meet two new characters, Philip and a fiery Hellenistic Pharisee named Saul. Let's begin with Acts chapter 8. The persecution in Jerusalem forces the disciples to scatter to the province of Judea and their cousins to the north, Samaria. We continue to see God's providence over the disciples. Uh, they are being led by God's spirit and continue to perform supernatural acts. This is a clear sign that God is working amongst them and endorses their activities. Uh, the, the tale of Simon the sorcerer in verses 9 to 25 would have resonated with Luke's audience as a twist of the Ananias and Sapphira story that we read back in Acts uh, chapter 5. And uh, within this story, actions such as the divine interventions and healing uh, were considered acceptable in Hellenistic societies because the perception was that they came from gods, but sorcery was frowned upon in most Hellenistic lands. Amongst other things, sorcerers were perceived to work in the area of curses. In Roman circles, for example, they would be employed to invoke curses upon uh, jilted lovers or an opposing equestrian team in the Hippodrome. And, and so in the, this cautionary tale, we note that Simon sees supernatural works from the disciples and converts. He presumably converts as a Samaritan following the uh, Gerizim-based form of Yahweh worship. Um, and as a side note, the Samaritans were polytheists, which is to say that they worshipped multiple gods, as was common in the first century. However, their principal god was Yahweh, much like the principal god of Athens was Athena and Rome, Jupiter. In any case, Simon converts and is eager for these supernatural abilities. He wants to pay for the privilege and then is strongly admonished by Peter in Acts chapter 8, verses 20 to 23. Luke wants the reader to know that the ecclesia, the early church, was resisting corruption. In any case, the signs and wonders were an outworking of God's spirit within the community. So Simon was after the means, not the ends. 
so to speak. Simon is admonished, and Luke writes that Simon has a backtracking of sorts, although it isn't extremely clear. The church's purity, however, is maintained. We then move to an interesting tale of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. While we will cover Saul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus later, it is this episode that is clearly key to Luke's readers, so it deserves some focus. The eunuch is introduced as pious and clearly devoted to Yahweh. Because he is both foreign, a Gentile, and mutilated, he would not have been permitted access inside the sanctuary within the temple. This is uh, essential to be aware of, that he does not have access to Yahweh under the old temple system. The eunuch is musing on a passage in Isaiah, and we read an excerpt from chapter 53. It's a beautiful passage that modern Christians attribute nowadays to Jesus. I'll just read an excerpt. Uh, from verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, a good God-fearing Jew would have realized that this is only an excerpt of a larger passage. If we were to continue reading through Isaiah, the story shifts to a promise of victory against sin and a restoration of Zion. And it doesn't stop there. If we continue to read onwards to chapter 56 in Isaiah, we would come across an unusual step change in the story. Let's read from verse 3 in Isaiah chapter 56 and see if you can spot where this gets relevant to Luke's narrative. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial, and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and all who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And it's the four nations piece. As a narrative plot, this could not be more plain. Luke is using the story of Philip and the eunuch to directly call out the point made in Isaiah that God's intentions have always been the restoration, not just of the Jewish people, but of all humanity. Now, it's worth pausing a moment and reflecting that proselytizing is not in ancient traditions. Aside from some debate in modern scholarship about mystery cults, for example, the, um, the cult of Mithras, uh, very popular amongst Roman soldiers, uh, there were few concepts of religious followings. Hellenists accepted a pantheon of gods who interacted in their own plane and had some special characteristics. Judaism was an outlier in this pantheon, but legalized in Roman culture because it was considered an ancient tradition. And uh, this is what garnered respect uh, amongst the conservative and tradition-heavy Romans. 
God's purpose, according to Isaiah, was that God would use the Jewish people as a means to restore all nations back to him. That is, all those that desire restoration. And that this would bring about a putting to right of all things. So what we see here is Luke using this narrative to explain to his readers that Jesus is the beginning of the new work God is doing. That the believers, what we would nowadays call the church, is the new temple, the new Zion, to borrow Isaiah's language. And that Gentiles who want to partake can now choose to do so. Jesus is good news, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. From here we move to possibly the most significant figure in Christian history after Jesus of Nazareth, Saul of Tarsus. It's worth understanding some of what we know about Saul before we read through his conversion experience. It is undoubted that Luke's readers will have known about him and his reputation. Saul is an extremely unusual character. He is a Hellenistic Jew, that, that is a Jew brought up in Tarsus, a reasonably wealthy city in modern-day Turkey. He undoubtedly was brought up in a Greek-based culture, understanding the pantheon of gods, the language, both written and oratory styles, as well as the philosophies of his time, notably Stoicism. We also know that Saul was a Pharisee. He was therefore an innovator in promoting the canon of scripture as well as the central tenant uh, of Jewish faith being the canon and scripture as opposed to the temple. This is not unusual since most Hellenistic Jews would have been more partial to the Pharisee, the Pharisaic way of reconciling Jewish life when you were not close to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. Sadducees maintained the temple culture while Pharisees promoted a canon-based religion. Saul, however, was clearly able to negotiate these worlds. He was taught in Jerusalem under no other than Gamaliel, a, a veritable rock star in Jewish circles. We must assume that Paul was influential in Jewish aristocracy. We know that he was zealous to preserve uh, Jewish culture against heresies, the, the Jesus cult being a principal example. And finally, to top off Saul's accolades was the jewel in his crown. Saul was a Roman citizen. We have no knowledge of how he gained his citizenship, presumably through his parents, but his status as a citizen has profound implications. The Romans had no notion of meritocracy as we understand it today. Society was structured from the imperial classes, the patricians and the equestrians, all the way down to the plebeians, where we get the word pleb. Roman citizenship provided Paul with a level of rights that engendered envy in his time. In the history of the Roman Republic, we have accounts of uprisings within the Italian peninsula based in no small part on Rome refusing to grant citizenship to its long-standing Italian inhabitants. Citizenship was a profound status to gain in the first century for a non-Roman. So here we have a Jew who could influence in the highest court in Jerusalem, a Hellenist educated in Greek culture, and a Roman citizen with the freedoms and legal status of a Roman. We have a young man here who had it all. Little did he know that he was on his way to give it all up.
so here we meet Saul on the road from Jerusalem in Judea, traveling to Syria in the north in the city of Damascus. He has his letters of authority from the Sanhedrin to arrest Jewish men and women who were defiling the faith by professing that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. A light appears and blinds Saul. Jesus of Nazareth appears in glory. Luke is keen to use his imagery of the divine here. It's an overt message to his readers that Jesus is divine because it borrows imagery found in the encounters of Yahweh to his prophets written in the Old Testament and would be well understood in Luke's day. God appears blinding and none may see his face and live. Saul meets Jesus and is blinded. Saul is led blind into Damascus. The three days of blindness he endures have parallels with the three days uh, Jesus was uh, dead. What is interesting in this passage is that God uses his church as the remedy to Saul's blindness. This is in part practical. Saul, after all, is an enemy of the church, so he needs all the support he can get to vouch for his transformational change. The second has a deeper lesson for Luke's readers. God wants to use the church as the instrument for fulfilling his divine purpose. And, and once again, Luke makes Saul's mission abundantly clear. In verse 15, Luke writes Saul's commission uh, coming straight from God. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Note the order here that the Gentiles are mentioned first. This will end up being Saul's primary mission. It's worth remembering that Saul was a divisive figure in early, early Christendom. He has been labelled from uh, being a faithful follower of Jesus to the usurper of Jesus' message and even uh, as the Antichrist by some. Luke wants to make it clear that Saul has been set aside by God no less for the purpose of teaching Gentiles about Jesus. And so Saul regains his sight through Ananias. He rests and begins to tell the diaspora Jews in Damascus about Jesus. The Jews are shocked by Paul's change and eventually threaten to kill him. He travels back to Jerusalem and continues to preach the message about Jesus. It's interesting here that Luke writes in verse 29 that Saul preached to Hellenistic Jews. These Jews would not have been residents of Jerusalem or the province of Judea, and as likely they would have been more versed in Greek culture. This is Saul working in his mission field, focusing on the Greek. In what is now typical Lukean fashion, uh, the numbers of disciples are increased, but the message angers the Jews and results in threats to the disciples' lives. Saul is taken from Jerusalem by the disciples and sent to his hometown of Tarsus in Turkey. This is where the story of Saul stops at least for a while. We're also going to pause things here because the next section of Acts focuses on Peter and his travels. Within this section, Luke answers one of the decisive questions about Gentiles being baptised into the new movement. Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to follow Jesus' way? We'll explore how Luke answers this question in the next episode.
And once again, thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to get in touch. And I'll see you again in the next episode of Acts.